Welcome to episode 12 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I am an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is a user-submitted topic. We are going to be discussing revision. So, anyway, this is our first first podcast of the new year, so happy new year. From happy 2016. Happy two- if you're anything like me, you'll still be writing 2015 on all your stuff until or at least March. 2017, because... because pub- <laughs> oh, because publishing. Because yeah. <laughs> publishing Because your publishing. Yeah, it's time travel. Uh, anyway, so actually we are trying time traveling as we record this since we are still recording in 2015. Um, mm-hmm. but this podcast will be live in January. So, uh, hello from the past, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've, we thought we'd start this year with, uh, revision, which was a, a user submitted topic. And we thought it'd be appropriate because, uh, back in November, some of you guys did NaNoWriMo, um, and hopefully you have, some of you also have finished manuscripts. And so, you know, the, the question is, what do you do with a manuscript now that you're done with it? Um, mm-hmm. so don't, you know, send it out into the world unpolished and, and unfinished. You know, revision is, is a step of writing at every, every step of writing, actually, you know, Mm -hmm. revision is, is a constant thing before you get a deal after you get a deal. And the only time revising ever stops is when that book gets published. And even then sometimes you just, you you just want to keep editing. (laughs) (laughs) You see that one little thing that drives you crazy that you're like, Oh, I could have written this better or blah, 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 blah. So, um, so revising is, is definitely important part of writing. Um, so let's see. We're going to talk about, I guess, two types of revision. And that is the type of revision that you do on your own or with the aid of your critique group or your beta reader, beta, beta readers. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but the revisions that you do on your own, maybe before you're querying your novel. And then there are revisions that you get with professional input, say from your agent or your editor. Um, so they're both kind of similar, um, except when you're doing it on your own, obviously you don't have that kind of input from an expert, from a professional. So let's start there. How do you revise if you're unagented, if you don't have a book deal, if you're just trying to polish your manuscript to make it the best it can be before you start querying? I think part of it does depend a little bit on what sort of feedback you like to get because I know writers who don't have beta readers who don't have critique groups who sort of go it alone and that that process works really well for them I'm I'm not one of them I have a a small select trusted group of friends who I like to send my stuff out to to see you know what their thoughts are and you know any places that they they might be confused or they, you know, don't understand the motivation of the character or things don't make sense. Um, for those who do not have critique groups 
or beta groups or beta readers. Um, my piece of advice, first and foremost, is to let it sit. Just put your manuscript aside for really honestly as long as you can give it. <laughs> the more distance you have from your manuscript, the more perspective you have on it. And I know a lot of people get impatient. I know a lot of people, as soon as they finish writing something, their first instinct is to, to send it out immediately. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I highly advise against that. Um, you know, that, that distance is in fact, is pretty crucial that when you're no longer in that first blush, first blush of infatuation with your own writing and you wouldn't take a step back, you can start to see the places, Oh, where the pacing drags here or, Oh, you know, this isn't as emotionally taut or fraught as I want it to be here. You, you know, you start to see the places with a little bit more objectivity that need work. So that's really my first piece of advice is even if you do have beta readers, I mean, I guess you have the time built in, like when you write something and then you send it out to your beta readers, you know, you, you're not working on it as your beta readers are reading it and giving you feedback. So time is really, 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 really useful when it comes to, to revisions. Um, now, as far as beta readers go, you know, depending on how long they get back to you, how long it takes for them to get back to you with feedback. This is a slightly, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's a difficult process because it's not. Um, but you, you sort of start to sift that feedback, you know, you sort of sift through it and find the bits of feedback that speak to you. Um, you know, the first, I think a lot of people's first reaction is to get defensive about their work, mm -hmm. even if that criticism is coming from your friends and trusted readers. Um, and, and sometimes they just, it's a matter of personal taste. Now, Kelly and I were actually talking about this before we started recording. A lot of what we're going to be talking about in terms of revision is instinctual. We are sort of getting into the, quote, mystical side of, of art. <laughs> um, where this, this is the part where it requires both experience in that you've read a lot so you know what works in a book in terms of pace, character development, storytelling. And so that's the experience side of it. And then gut instinct, finesse, you know, your, your own artistic touch. And writing is always going to be a balancing act between those two things, work and, and inspiration. So revision... I think having a very strong vision of what you want your book to be is very important. So when you get feedback from your beta readers that contradicts your vision, then you can, you know, disregard that. If, if, if their feedback is taking your manuscript in a direction that you don't, that doesn't align with your own vision of your book, then, you know, that's not going to help you. Mm -hmm. Well, it will help you in the sense that what you're trying to communicate obviously isn't clear. Because if you have a reader who is 
taking it off on this tangent or as misinterpreting your characters, it's fine for you to say, well, that's not what I intended. But at the same time, you're not going to be there you know, when your book is published and readers get a hold of it, you're not going to be able to sit beside every reader and tell them what you intended. <laughs> and so part of that feedback from your beta readers too can be pointing out to you what's not clear. So if they're taking different interpretations away from your book, use that as a sign to say to yourself, I really need to work on clarifying these things because clearly I'm not doing a good enough job of that. So you don't have to change your intent or change where things are going, but maybe use that as kind of a window into the things that need tightening up. I think it might have been Neil Gaiman, but it actually, I may be misattributing this quote to him, but somewhere someone had said, if someone tells you, you know, there's something wrong with your manuscript, they're right. But if they tell you how to fix it, they're wrong mm -hmm. because, and, and I think that's right. It, when people come back and, and have a issue with parts of your manuscript, um, you know, th that's a sign that something's not working. And, but because it is your writing, it is your book. You're the one that should come up with the solutions to fix it because listening to someone else and taking their suggestions or, doing what they tell you to do, it, it, then it becomes their book and not yours. So, you know, the whole process of getting feedback, especially if you haven't had a critique before, or if you're not used to getting feedback or critiques from, from other people that can be really daunting. So, you know, again, so you get feedback from your, from your beta readers or critique group. Also sit on that. <laughs> Yeah, as much time as you can give yourself at each stage of the revision process, the better to just really absorb the feedback that you're getting. And we'll talk to we have a future podcast episode slated to talk about how to form critique groups, how to be a good critique partner, how to give useful feedback, how to ask for the type of feedback that you need. So we'll go much more into depth um, in all that in a future episode. But once you get that feedback from your beta readers or from your critique group and you've sat with it for a little while and you've quashed your instinct to be defensive and to say, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and you've sat with it and you've sifted through everything and you've said, okay, these points make sense to me and I'm going to work on those and these don't matter to me and I'm going to discard them because they're not relevant to my you know, vision or whatever it is that you do to decide how and what you're going to work on. What do you do then? How do you actually get back into working on your manuscript that you've taken this time away from? How do you get back into it and to begin to fix the things that are wrong with it? Well, I, I tend to like to work from the biggest to smallest, if that makes sense. So big picture things, characterization, plot, uh, which, and, you know, characterization should feed into the plot, obviously. Uh, but you know, big picture things. Um, and when I mean big picture, I think actually the biggest thing is probably going to be pacing for me. The sort of first thing I look at is, is does it take too long for the story to get going? 
Does it, you know, does it not take enough time to, you know, properly develop tension in the middle bits so that the payoff is, you know, properly emotionally satisfying? And, you know, some, some of you who are plotters may already have, you know, planned out your story beats before you've, you've written your draft. Um, but for those of us who are not plotters, this is the time for me when I sit back and I get those books like Save the Cat or whatever, the, the sort of structure craft books and look at the, the story beats and sort of reverse outline my book. <laughs> I did talk about this a little bit uh, for some posts for Pub Crawl and, and different members of the Pub Crawl crew have written posts on revision as well, which we'll definitely link to in the show notes. But reverse outlining for me is I take a look at what I've written and identify the parts of my manuscript. Okay, so this is the inciting incident. This is the, the point where they get personally involved. This is the end of act one. This is the midpoint reversal. This is the end of the second act. I, I map that out in my own book. And where my book doesn't line up, I don't want to say line up because that makes it sound a little bit too formulaic, but this is, again, this is where the instinctual part beats of storytelling that, you know, most writers have come in handy. And, and the more you read, the more you sort of absorb these storytelling beats and the, the parts where I feel like it hasn't, you know, sufficiently earned its emotional payoff or it, it's dragging here, you know, all that sort of stuff. I reverse outline my manuscript and sort of fix that first. That That's how I, I, how I plot it out. And then big picture story beats aside, then I start drilling down the sort of smaller and smaller and smaller levels. So pacing fixed. Now I work on characterization. Um, and this is kind of a little bit more on a line level, um, you know, tightening up dialogue or emotional reactions or cutting things out. You know, I, I do a lot of cutting because I tend to write long. So a lot of my revision passes tend to be sort of trimming as much as possible. Um, and then the very final pass, I usually do about three passes in one revision, if that makes sense. Um, I don't consider these passes separate revisions. I, I tend to think of it as one revision. Um, it, so big picture and then sort of drilling down. The last thing I do is, is prose. That's, you know, to me, that's the smallest aspect of writing. And I know a lot of people work on their prose and they work on their craft and uh, their voice in that respect. But for me, the story is the biggest thing that needs to be fixed first. And then you can tinker with, with diction and word choice with later. So that's generally how I approach revision on all stages before publication and after publication. I've always worked sort of from big picture to small. Um, so that, that's my process, but that may not be everyone else's process. I know people who revise as they write. Um, I can't do that, <laughs> but I, I know people who do. Um, and a lot of these people who do tend to be plotters, but not always, you know, everyone's writing process is going to be different. So, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. so 
I have a couple of questions then about making the switch from revising on your own, which we've talked about, and to the stage of revision that happens um, with your agent and then later your editor. So obviously, before you've queried to get your agent in the first place, you've probably done some revisions, you've done some polishing, you've made the manuscript the best that you can. And then likely your agent is probably going to come back with some suggestions. Maybe not. Maybe your agent thinks it's great as is and you're ready to send it out immediately. Uh, but if the agent doesn't have any suggestions for revision, then your editor most certainly will, whether they're mm-hmm. light or heavy. And so the first of several questions that I have is, is that different to have that professional input? Is it harder to feel like you've already gone through these revisions on your own and you've already polished the manuscript and worked it and then to have to almost go back to square one and, you know, go back and polish the whole thing again. How is that, how is that professional feedback different from the revisions that you do on your own? Personally, I find it easier to revise with a contract. Um, and I know not everybody is actually going to feel the same way and, a lot of people who who do uh, edit or revise under under contract kind of loathe that part of it, but I found it easier. And part of that is because of the way I work. Uh, I tend to like to talk through story, just talk through story. And an editor is a professional who does this for a living, and so being able to talk to that person. And, you know, most professionals, most editors won't say you must do this, or at least in my experience, that hasn't been the case. And it certainly wasn't what I did when, when I made, you know, wrote my editorial letters and spoke to my authors. I, I, I always like to talk things out and having that soundboard there because getting feedback from my, my writer friends, you're looking at it almost from inside the house. You know, you, you can't see what the house looks like as you're inside the house. And writers are like that too. They tend to look at, you know, writing from the inside. Even my beta readers who are published writers and those who are unpublished give me a slightly different perspective than my editor or my agent does because they're outside my manuscript. And even my agent and my editor will give me two different perspectives as well. But ultimately, the editor is my liaison in the publishing house and hers is kind of the most important feedback that I'm going to get after I've gotten my book contract. And it it helps to have that outside perspective. You know, we're both building a house together. I'm the one inside the house and she's the one outside the house. So she can say, Hey, you know, your West wing is falling down. We we need to, you know, break up that foundation and, and shore it up a little bit. Um, you know, or your, you know, the East wing is getting a little bit overblown. Maybe we should take off some of the furlaboos over there and, you know, maybe less Rococo and fancy or, you know, whatever she, she's able to give me or he, whoever yet, you know, editor is, will be able to give you feedback. And for me, because I like to talk, I, I often do that over the phone and, um, you know, she's not going to, my editor isn't going to say, you know, this is what you should be doing. But during the course of the conversations that I have with her, my hind brain is working on the problems that she's sort of 
brought to my attention and then I can go back to my manuscript and then the process is more or less the same you know before you know I I look at the story beats and I see where my manuscript isn't lining up with the suggestions that I've gotten from my editor and then I you know work from the biggest to smallest but for me working with a professional revising with a professional is is much easier <laughs> much much easier it, you know it's playing catch with somebody as opposed to playing catch with yourself i guess <laughs> mhm so how is the revision process different from the writing process i mean obviously it's different in the mechanics you're not creating the story you're going back and fixing the story but what skills or um, things do you need to focus on? In what ways do you use different parts of your brain or different parts of your creative process between writing versus revision? Because I know some people really love writing and hate revising. And then some people really hate writing, but love revising, you know, and so it, or, and I'm sure there's the rare unicorn who enjoys both. (laughs) But it seems like each piece calls to different personalities. And so what is it, what do you need to have or focus on to be a good reviser? I think the ability to not get sick of your own work, (laughs) honestly, I mean, skill set wise, the ability to polish is really the ability to be patient and take your time. And admittedly, that is not one of my virtues. Patience is not one of my virtues at all. And, you know, and I'd mentioned in previous podcasts that I was in visual arts conservatory in high school. Now, generally the process of creating a finished work of, of visual art is fairly similar to writing. You have, you start with what we call cartoons or thumbnails where you just sort of sketch very, very quickly, very, very lightly, or at least the process is similar for me in writing as it is in in visual art. But you start with these cartoons, very, very quick sketches, where you sort of try out various things, where you look, this is the composition, you know, this is the placement of the figures, this is the very basic color palette that I'm going to use, and you sort of tweak that before you approach the actual canvas that you're working with. And... You know, you then I sort of put down the broad strokes first. You know, I sketch, you know, the, the composition of the painting. I was mostly a painter. And then I would, you know, paint in literal broad strokes, fill in the color. And then I would start refining it. I would go in and put in the light and the, the finer details, the eyes, the hands, the hair, whatever it was. I, I focused mostly on portraiture, so mine was mostly figures of people. I hated the refinement process. I just wanted to be done and move on to my next project, whatever it was. Um, hence the same thing actually is with writing for me. I, I hate revising simply because I don't have patience. It isn't that I necessarily want to push my manuscript out the world straight away. I just you know, sitting down and looking at my words over and over again, I tend to doubt myself a lot. I second guess myself a lot, which is often why I never double checked my work in school. <laughs> I just finished my test and turned in, 
always one of the first people to finish her like algebra tests or something. Cause I never double check my work, but, and, and don't do that people. You guys, I, I happen to be, you know, lucky and or quick, but you know, definitely double check your work to make sure you're not making stupid mistakes. Like I often did, but I, to be a good reviser, you have to have patience and to do the same thing over and over again, really. I, I mean, I do get bored very quickly. So revising when you're with the same manuscript for, you know, several months at a time, it starts to get boring, at least for me. And so for me, and I'd mentioned this in, in one of the posts I wrote for Pub Crawl, I have to trick myself into thinking I'm writing a new book. And I often do that by retyping my entire manuscript. And, you know, it, it, I mean, I'm a fast typer, so that helps. But in that process of actually retyping my whole book, I start to see, or, you know, I, I come across the words in a slightly different way. So I will be refining dialogue and character interaction here and there, and I'll come across where, oh, it seems really long here. I'm going to cut it here. Or it, you know, it seems like I could expand here. So those are sort of the tricks that I use to get the revision. But again, not everyone is like me. Um, I, you know, tend to do things very quickly and then sort of leave them. So that, that's, that's my, my modus operandi. <laughs> um, but patience, patience is definitely something I think that you would need when you, when you're revising your own work. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to one of the most painful parts of revision, which is the famous saying that is often attributed to all kinds of people. It's been attributed to Faulkner. It's been attributed to Oscar Wilde. It's been attributed to everyone. <laughs> I don't know where it really originated, uh, but that is murder your darlings. Oh yeah. That one. <laughs> what, what happens when you, or how, not what happens, but how do you get through those moments where it becomes clear in the revision process that you have to cut something, whether it's a scene or a character or a plot element that you just love. You, it just personally is your own little baby and you love it. And it, it reads so beautifully and the prose is gorgeous and it's so wonderful for a myriad of reasons, but it is just clear that it has no place in your manuscript and it's got to go. How do you... How do you do that? How do you murder your darlings? Well, I murder my darlings all the time. I don't really care. <laughs> You're not sentimental. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, I well, I mean, I do keep a, a file. Uh, I, I I write from Scrivener, so I actually have like a separate folder under the research tab uh, that I call orphans, and it's any scene or any bits of writing that just don't fit anymore that I know don't fit. I just you know, copy and paste it into the orphans file and I just kind of leave it. And I have never, ever, maybe like a phrase or two. And by a phrase, I mean like maybe like three, three to five words at a time. I, but like 99% of the time I never use that writing again. It's, and, but I'm not sentimental about it. Maybe because I, I write a lot, 
you know, mo- like most of my revision is cutting. So I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily going in and filling things in. So I'm, I'm not particularly attached to the words I've written. But for me, the the murder your darlings is is less about the prose, I think, than your emotional attachment to the way things turn out. Now, <laughs> I'm going to use this example and people might shoot me for using it, but let us take the ending of Harry Potter. Why would you do this? <laughs> <laughs> the world is not ready for me to unleash my thoughts on the end of Harry Potter just yet. Maybe someday we can have a podcast where I'll talk about it. I'll just keep I'll just be quiet and you can you talk. <laughs> I have thoughts. Yeah, I have I have many thoughts and feelings as well, especially as I've just finished rereading that book, uh, rereading the series. But especially the way the romantic entanglements ended of that in that series, actually. J.K. Rowling has gone on record as, as saying that she had always intended Ron and Hermione to end up together from the beginning. And I believe her in, you know, and that's perfectly fine. But the way the series turned out, you can kind of tell that she intended Harry and Ginny and Ron and Hermione to be together and so that everybody could be one big happy Weasley family. And it to me, it's not earned. But I got the sense as I was, re- especially in this reread, that she was so married to this. That epilogue, man. I know, I hate that <laughs> epilogue so much. <laughs> anyway, anyway. But this, this epilogue where these characters are together 19 years later when really, would they, would they really, I don't think so. Anyway, I have, I have my own thoughts about that, but that's what I mean by that's for me, murder your darlings is if you're stuck, if you are so attached to the way something has to turn out, even though the story is taking it somewhere else, you have to let go of your original conception of it of whatever it is, whatever your darling is, a, a romantic pairing, a, you know, a character, um, you know, this character is meant to die or live or whatever, you know, your original conception of whatever it is, but it's no longer servicing the story, then it has to go. And that to me is a little bit harder than, you know, murdering my prose. Cause I can toss that out. I mean, mm-hmm. Your ego always has to be subservient to the story. The story is ultimate, ultimately the thing that has to matter the most. And so, you know, no matter what you as the author want to do to force your chess pieces around the board, you know, if, if they're not, that's what we talk about when we talk about characters acting out of character. And some people might say, well, I'm the author and they're my characters and I will make them do whatever I want them to do. But if it, if it doesn't feel earned, if it doesn't feel natural, if it's stilted or comes out of nowhere, y- your readers can tell and you just you recoil against that because it's not earned. It's not it doesn't belong there. And that was an author who couldn't let go of their control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, I, that's the first. Honestly, the biggest example that always comes to me is the ending of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you should have killed those darlings. You really should have. <laughs> yeah, that episode, that epilogue should not have been included. But there, were, but there's a lot of things in Deathly Hallows that should have been included. 
I love Harry Potter. I started reading Harry Potter when it first came out and was published in the U.S. And I loved it fiercely and desperately for years. And I really sometimes feel like that book is just a betrayal. (laughs) (laughs) So, but anyway, but I I love you, J.K. Rowling. I love all of your books and uh, even even that one. It gives me the Ron Hermione kiss, so it's got to be good for something. Yeah, I just... Yeah, I don't know. I, actually, it, it is the Ron Hermione thing that bugs me more than anything else. I know, I know. We're going to do an episode on on romantic pairings and interests yes. and our own personal stuff, and we'll <laughs> we'll get to that later. I I will say that uh, I I can understand the dislike of Ron. I understand where that comes from, and I can't argue against it. So. It is what it is. I love you, Ron Weasley. You are my king. Anyway. (laughs) But not really, actually. I don't know. I don't know. I'm drinking Malbec tonight, guys. Uh, I didn't mention this last time, but I had mold mold apple cider with whiskey. So, you know, not tonight, though. I'm being good tonight. (laughs) So aside from murder your darlings, are there any other questions about revision that you can think of at the moment that maybe we can try and illuminate from for our for our readers. I'm trying to think if there's any further major differences between revision being guided by your editor or your agent and and revision on your own. And I guess the one thing that I would say that I guess you would maybe be able to comment on more or not, I don't know, is that you just have to trust that your agent and your editor know what they're talking about. And they do. And it, I know it can feel like, you know, why am I getting these notes and why am I getting this thing? And I've already rewritten this thing like five times. And why is the editor revising it after the agents already revised it and the agents are professional? And why is this, you know, you really just have to trust that every revision makes the book better. Yes. And that these are people that are in the industry that know what they're talking about and that are experts in their field and know how to bring your book to that next level and believe that you can do it because the other thing too is that the agent is not revising your book and the editor is not revising your book. They're reading it and they're giving you feedback and they're pointing out some problem areas, but you're the one who has to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there might be this instinct to feel like you're losing ownership of what you know, if you get feedback, if you make changes according to what other people say, whether it's your beta readers or your editor and your agent, you lose, you know, some of what originally made the book your own. But that's not true because as JJ said earlier, people can tell you where the problems are, but you're the one who has to come up with the solutions mm-hmm. to fix it. And and I will say this personally speaking, okay, this is going to be some confession time in, as in the, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> I think you already mentioned it once before, so yeah. go ahead. But guys, seriously, don't do this. Yeah, don't do this. Um, but I did not revise before I queried. Uh, I wrote my book for NaNoWriMo, literally wrote, finished it December 31st, no, December 30th, 
sent out a query, maybe January 5th. And then I got represented two weeks later. So it was very quick. Um, but going into this, I knew that the ending needed work, but I also knew that I did not know how to fix my own ending (laughs) and that my friends who had read the book for me also didn't know how to fix the ending. So, and that was in fact, some of the feedback that I got from the agents who rejected my manuscript said, you know, we love this book. Don't really know what to do with the end. And my agent did. And when you are in the process of querying or selling your book, if you are so fortunate enough as to get multiple offers of representation, really talk to them about their vision, their vision for your book and whether or not that vision is in line with yours. Now, my agents was, you know, and, and her questions and comments and feedback about my manuscript were in line with, with mine, but moreover, it made me look at my manuscript slightly differently, differently and was able to help me fix my ending. Now, with my agent, before we went on submission, we did two editorial passes. One to sort of fix the big picture issues, and then the another one to sort of clean up any of the newer issues that came up after the first revision. Um, and then we went out on submission. And with my editor the same. We did two. We did one sort of more major and then one slightly smaller. And every step of this process, the revision process, so the editing process, I always felt like I was the one in control of my book. And most, of course, you know, I will also admit that I am coming from it from a slightly different perspective than many of our listeners will be having been an editor. So I do have that perspective. I know it's not personal and I have the ability to step away from my book and to look at it as a product. Like it's mine, but it's also something it's not, it isn't me. It's mine, but it isn't me. And I think I I am able to do that pretty easily. So I don't get offended when people don't like my book. I don't get offended when people reject me. I don't get offended when my editor or agent suggests something. I have a very, very clear vision of what my book, what I wanted my book to be. And every single suggestion or comment that my agent and editor made was in line with what I wanted my book to be. And most of the time, a good, good feedback is like 95% questions <laughs> is what I, and in my editorial letters, I always tried to ask questions because I'm not going to suggest how to fix something because ultimately it's not my book. You know, it's the author's book. They're the ones it's their vision on the page. So I always asked questions like, why does the character do this here? Why does this, you know, why, or how does the character get from point A to point B? like 95% questions, you know, I'm not in, and my editor did the same thing and, and my agent did too. So it was always my answers. They're the ones asking questions, but it was my answers. Therefore, I always felt that it was my vision leading every revision that I did with both of them. And because they're professionals, they asked questions 
from an outside perspective and from a professional perspective that my writer friends weren't able to ask me. And these questions, again, forced me to look at my manuscript in a slightly different way. So now I know not everybody is going to be able to do this, the sort of separation of book and self. (laughs) Um, I know it's hard I'm in college. Maybe it was burned out of me in college. I, I did, I did creative writing in college. And when you, when you go to workshops, <laughs> you, you learn very quickly to just sit down and shut up <laughs> about, your, about your own work. And it isn't personal. So, but I, I always felt like I was in control. And if you don't feel like you're in control of the revision, then you should talk to your agent or your editor. You know, just because they are the professional, it doesn't mean that their word is law. You, you know, if there is a, if your visions aren't aligning, then you should really talk and, and talk through that. I'm a big fan of communication. If you're unhappy, if you're, you know, offended or hurt, you know, or, or happy even, you should keep those lines of communication as open and clear as possible because nine times out of 10, your agent and editor isn't going to try and impose their will upon you. (laughs) They want to make your book the best book it can be. And it's your book. It's not their book. If it was their book, they would have written it themselves. So, you know, try to look at it as everyone's on a team, you know, on a team to make your book the best. You're the one spearheading that you're doing most of the work. You're like the director of a film crew and your agent and editors are, you know, like the director of photography or, you know, the editor who edits the film together later, you know, that it's sort of a relationship in that regard, but you are the auteur, you're the eye the one with the vision. So that's really my advice. (laughs) So that's pretty much it for revisions, or at least as much as we can tell you, it is a uniquely personal process, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I always, it the, almost all writing advice always boils down to read a lot, a lot read a lot because the more you read and read diversely and broadly, the more you read, the better sense you get of how stories are told and how stories unfold and the different ways they unfold. And, you know, and this is the other thing. So I was an English major in college, you know, and you know, you, when you were an English major, you analyze works of literature and it's really useless <laughs> as far as, as the job market goes, but it really helps to deconstruct, you know, when you're, when you're writing and in the revision process, having had that analytical background helps me deconstruct my own writing and, and the why. And it's not just my own writing. It's every book that I read, deconstruct that book, what makes it work. Why does it work? What has the writer done that makes it work? You know, the more you read and the more you think critically about what you read, the better writer you will be. So that's all advice. And and with revision, the more you read, the better sense you get. 
the better revisor you'll be. You know, you, you, you will build that subconscious toolbox of how to tell a story. So that's kind of that and be patient. <laughs> I'm working on number two. <laughs> it's really, really hard. <laughs> I'm not a patient person, uh, but patience, it's not going to be perfect the first time. It, nothing ever is. And it may not be perfect the second or third or fourth, fifth, however many drafts it takes to, to get that book to the vision that you want it, you know, and it may never get there, but you want to get it as close as you possibly can. So revision is really refining. And that's really the advice we can give. If you guys have any specific questions about characterization or structure or prose, we can try and answer those questions as well in separate podcasts. Um, but as a general overview into revision, I think our pieces of advice is one, let it sit for yep. as much as time. long as possible, yeah. like months if you can, but at least weeks. Uh, I say in an ideal world, six weeks, let it rest for six weeks mm-hmm. and, um, just do something else. Don't even write something new. I, I always said, do something else, find another creative venture. And when you're not actively thinking about your book anymore, all the sort of stuff at the back of your brain kind of starts to, to bubble up and you, you get new ideas. And by the time you get back to your manuscript, six weeks later, you have fresh eyes. So you can look at it, you know, with a little bit more objective distance. Um, months, if you can, uh, I know not everybody wants to wait that long. And so those of us under contract may not actually have the ability to wait that long either. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, this is before you query. This is like if you had two months or you can stick it in a drawer and then revise it before you query. If you're revising with a contract, then you absolutely have a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but if, if you're about to query, I'd say, you know, give it six weeks. Six weeks is, I think, long enough to give yourself space. So that's the, the first thing in the, in, in the meantime, I always, I always do this too. read while you're letting your manuscript rest, read and absorb that creative energy. Other authors have put out into the world. So read books and also read bad ones. <laughs> I think you can learn just as much from a bad book what as a good one. What not to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, so read indiscriminately, read broadly, diversely, and indiscriminately, uh, cause that's the best way you learn how to write and revise. So I think that wraps up our, our revision advice, but I think so. All right. So we can move on to some fun stuff. So you working on anything creative? Are you continuing uh, to write have... a NaNoWriMo novel? Well, this is the thing in terms of writing. So I have not um, done any writing for the month of December, really. I've been so swamped with holiday stuff and travel and other things. So I have not written in a couple weeks, but I'm excited to pick it back up. And my dilemma is whether or not to kind of continue on with my NaNoWriMo project, which toward the end of NaNoWriMo had gotten a complete overhaul. The setting had changed. Everything about it had wildly changed. So I'm almost back at square one with that. So I don't know whether I want to keep going with that or return to a previous project that I'd been working on a few years ago that's just this idea that I can't shake. And whenever I'm 
you know, thinking about writing, I'm thinking about the old idea. I'm not thinking about the NaNoWriMo idea. And so I think I might return to the old thing, which needs a lot of work. I'm not, I'm not ready to actually start writing on it yet. There would be a lot that would need to be sort of figured out and plotted and, and things like that, um, before I could actually do any writing at all, because it just needs a lot of work. So I think I might go that way. I'm not sure. So I haven't been doing anything uh, in terms of writing, what I have been doing is making paper snowflakes constantly, <laughs> incessantly. Um, I made a fun little tutorial for a friend of mine and I put it up online and that's been a lot of fun, but I'm just constantly, constantly making paper snowflakes to hang in my office or in my house or <laughs> whatever. So that's been my creative endeavor over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, I, I actually uh, made a couple of paper snowflakes myself using Kelly's tutorial. <laughs> um, I'm still working, obviously, on, on the middle grade, which was my, my NaNoWriMo project. And I did send it off to my agent, and I'm waiting to hear back from her to see what she thinks. And in I'm doing the procrastinatory writing and I know I'm doing procrastinatory writing because I started writing this primer about the world of my middle grade, you know, just explaining a little bit about how the magic works and, and everything. And I'm having fun with that, but it's not actually like moving my, my plot forward or anything. <laughs> and I know it's just purely procrastination because the idea of trying to just figure out what happens next, I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to face it. <laughs> um, and I just kind of want to maybe just hear back from my agent first to see what she thinks. And, you know, she's actually seen like several incarnations of this as well before I think I finally settled on what the story is going to be. So I am curious as to what she thinks of this particular version of it. So I am waiting. So, and, but I am doing that procrastinator thing. Like I'm still thinking about my project and I'm still thinking about the world and the characters and everything, but I'm just not actually writing. Um, but I, I, at some point I know I'm going to, I just have to suck it up and continue. But right now I'm just doing all the fun, tinkery, you know, ancillary stuff that isn't actually going to be in, in, in the book, but you know, it's just in case anybody wants it. <laughs> so that, that's really what my creative endeavor is right now. <laughs> Are you reading anything? Yes, actually. I'm reading a ton of stuff. Actually. I'm Part of it is because I'm at like 93 books read this year. Since we're still recording. Oh, you've got to make it to 100. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It needs to be a round number. Uh, I need to make, to make it to 100. So at the moment... I just finished up uh, rereading The Immortals Quartet by Tamara Pierce. Tamara Pierce. Um, I've been reading those on audiobook, and I just finished up the, the fourth book. And this is another one that I, that the older I got, the some of the romantic aspects of that series is like, ah! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, those are my favorite of Tamara Pierce's books. Um, and they, they remain my favorite of Tamara Pierce's books because, you know, the animals and I love that. It just, just, 
I mean, the love interest is 30 and she's 16, okay? And it's just yeah, kind of Yeah, like, the romance is not the best. <laughs> It's not the best. I mean, I thought it was kind of creepy when I read it first time when I was like nine. And because at that point, I always thought of Numair as being sort of like Dane's big brother. So mm-hmm. when the whole mm-hmm. declaration of love thing came, I was like, Bleh. but now that I am 30, <laughs> yes, it is just creepy. <laughs> I just, and then, yes. Oh God. And I'm just. Kind it would of, not be okay if Bear was 16. It wouldn't be no, okay. No, it's... No. I just, oh, it's... And, and, like, Tamara Pierce tries to mitigate it to some extent. You know, the characters address the age difference and the power differential because he's her teacher. It's just... It's not enough to overcome the... The squeak mm, factor for me. Just, yeah, mm. no. And usually I really love her romances, too. I love Tamara Pierce's books, which I came to really late in life. Um, I didn't start reading them until I worked at the literary agency that reps her. And then I saw her books on the shelf and I read them when I was in my late twenties. Um, for some reason, I, I don't know how they escaped me because I was a voracious reader as a child and they just never crossed my path. Um, so I love her books and I think that in general, she, her romances are really great. Uh, but that one, yeah. 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 So those are, I, I just finished those and, um, I just currently reading, the Lions of Al Rasan by Guy Gabriel Kay. This is uh, his. It's not really fantasy in that there's like magic or anything like that, but it is historical fantasy, sort of based on Moorish Spain during the time of El Cid. This is a brick of a book, you guys. I it, I borrowed it from the library, and this thing is like a thousand pages long, but it's very, very, very good. Uh, that I'm also reading. My second nonfiction book of the year, which is The Witches, Salem 1692 by Stacey Schiff. And I've heard a lot about that one. Yeah, I only just started that, but it has a dramatis personae in the in the beginning. That's kind of the most amazing thing I've ever read. Um, the Mime Order, which is the second bone season book by Sh- Samantha Shannon. And a YA book called Silver in the Blood by Jessica Day George. So those are the... F- Four books I am currently reading, and in addition to the four books I just finished on audio, so <laughs> I'm, I'm getting to a hundred this year. Like I said, it's still recording in 2015, and we still have a couple weeks of the year left, so I'm just gonna gonna do it. I'm gonna hit hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you reading? I have actually not been reading much in the past couple of weeks. Um, Things have been so busy in my life that reading has taken a slight backseat, but not entirely. So I just got, I have, uh, again, as always, a million books on hold from the library. They just haven't come in yet. But just earlier this morning, I got in These Shallow Graves by Jennifer Donnelly, Mm. which um, I don't really know anything about. I was in a bookstore and picked it up and was looking at it and didn't end up buying it, but wanted to read it. And so I put it on my library list and then it just popped up. Uh, I think it is a historical mystery. She's a historical writer. She actually wrote one of my favorite books, actually. Maybe I think it was published in 2011. It's called Revolution. I love this book. I, I I would highly recommend it. Uh, Kelly, I think you, I don't know if you would like it as much, but it's very much a me book. <laughs> it's a, it's a very JJ <laughs> book. Uh, I'll definitely check it out. 
revolution. So I just, yeah. oh no, go on. I was going to say revolution is just revolution. Tell us about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it takes half in contemporary times and she's a musical prodigy and the other half takes place in late 18th century France during the French revolution and is about a composer. And these, it's about these two girls in two different time periods and kind of how their, their lives sort of overlap and cross. And it's sort of a historical mystery as well. And, um, her, I know she writes adult historicals, but she actually won or was nominated for an award for a Northern light, um, which is just a straight up historical novel. Um, and so she's really good. I highly recommend her. I haven't read her newest book yet, though. Awesome. I look forward to it. I'll probably uh, check it out after I read this one if I like it. I'm really looking forward to it. it. It seemed really good in the bookstore. So I have that on that just came in from the library. So I'll start that soon. And then the only other thing that I've been reading lately is my husband and I, so I, I met my husband when he was an intern at the literary agency where I worked. And, uh, so he, <laughs> yep. So he, he, he was not my intern. He worked on a different floor. So it was super scandalous and we didn't really get together until after the internship was over. But, uh, but yeah, he was an intern at the literary agency where I worked and we started dating and, before we had started officially dating and went on our first date, we had, you know, had kind of like flirting casual conversations and somehow it had come up that my family growing up had a tradition of reading aloud, um, for years. I mean, until I was into high school, my mother and my sister and I would read books aloud and it was this cherished tradition in my family and I really loved it. And I'd said that I'd always wanted, you know, a romantic partner to read aloud with me and that it had just never happened. And he held on to that nugget of information. And then, you know, after we'd been on a couple dates and things were going pretty well, he showed up with a copy of The Hobbit. And that was the first book that we read aloud together. And uh, we've been reading aloud together ever since. So <laughs> we choose books and we read them aloud to one another, switching back and forth. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so we took a little bit of time off. I think that up until now, the last time we had read aloud was the night before I went into labor and had my daughter. So that was two years ago. And at the time we were reading Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban because I wanted something really comforting to read because <laughs> I was pregnant mm -hmm. and miserable. We'd already read the whole Harry Potter series aloud, but we went back to book three and we read that aloud, uh, the night before I had my daughter. And that's the last time we read aloud because the first year of parenthood is so crazy. You can't even, you know, read words on your own, let alone out loud. <laughs> And then um, this whole other year, we've just been so busy and everything. And my husband said to me a couple weeks ago, he's, he said, I really want to return to that. That was a great thing that we did and it helped us connect and it was really entertaining and I want to do it. So let's do that. So we started reading aloud again and I am always in charge of choosing the books because we had a couple duds <laughs> that were excellent books, but weren't good read aloud books. Yes. And I feel like you need, especially live, if it's not, you know, an audio, an audio book even, but if you're in the room with someone listening to them read the words aloud to you, it, it needs to have, it, it needs to be a good candidate for that. And so we had tried some books that weren't really great 
candidates for that. And we found that for us, the perfect sort of mix was uh, predominantly an adventure story, something that had a lot of action that was quick paced with good character development, a little bit of humor uh, thrown in, you know, with all the epic dramas and, you know, whatever else. Um, and while we don't exclusively read YA, we do tend to gravitate toward it because there's a lot of really great fast paced adventure stories. Mm -hmm written in YA. So right now we're reading Graceling by Christian Kishore. And yeah. I think we'll probably go through and we'll probably read Fire and Bitter Blue as well. Uh, but we started with Graceling, which I have read before. My husband has not. But so yeah, we're reading that out loud and it's really fun. And it's, if, if you think at all that you have even an inkling that reading aloud might be something that you would enjoy, you should really do everything you can to make it happen. I can't say enough good things about it as when I was a kid growing up and it was a family thing that we did and now doing it with my husband. It's just, it's really great. I love doing it. I'm so happy we started it again. You guys are so adorable. It makes me sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, my parents read aloud to me probably up until I was like eight or nine and then I just started reading too fast for them to keep up because, like, <laughs> you know, they'd, like, read, like, a chapter or two of a book to me at night. But then, like, after they've left and after they put me to bed, I'd, like, open the book back up and, like, continue reading from where they left off. That was terrible. Um, mm -hmm. so, I would do that, too. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, my family's not a, a big family of readers and, and Bear is not a reader himself. So it's, it's, it's just me. But I'm used to that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the lone reader amongst people who don't read. So, well, do you have any other off-menu recommendations this week? Any other off-menu recommendations? You know, I actually don't think so. I can't think of anything. What about you? Uh, nothing particularly new for me either. I've mostly just been, you know, I was trying to think if there's any like new podcasts that I've been subscribed to or anything like that. And, oh, here's something for revision. There is a podcast called Writing Excuses, which I may or may not have mentioned before. Um, and it's hosted by Mary Robinette Kowal, Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, and um, Howard Taylor. And they do very short sort of 20-minute, 15 to 20-minute, you know, basically what they call lessons. And, and they take one aspect of craft and writing and, and so on and, and discuss it in sort of a roundtable fashion. And they just wrapped up basically drafting a book. Season 10, all their episodes were about drafting book, about conflict and beginnings, middles, ends. And so I highly recommend this podcast. But going forward into, I think, the next season, which would be season 11, they are tackling revision. So, you know, again, as I said, each episode's about 15 to 20 minutes long. Their tagline is actually 15 minutes long because, you know, you don't have much time and we're not that smart or something, something like that. Um, and they do break things down pretty well. And I think they break things, you know, so something quick, I think I could definitely recommend that. Um, but I've been listening to their, their podcast for a while, so it's not particularly new to me. Because then the only other thing I've been listening to is Hamilton. You know, everything's all Hamilton all the time. <laughs> Forever and ever and ever. 
Yeah, I keep waiting to get tired of this. It hasn't happened yet, you know? It's full, what, how many months is it now? I guess it's only been like two months, but it feels longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've just been listening to Hamilton constantly. So, no, nothing really new for me either. Just, just writing excuses. You know, all my other podcasts, I think I've either mentioned before or are not particularly useful and or interesting to, I think, listeners of our podcast. <laughs> I keep waiting for cereal to come back. That's 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 it. Yeah, I'm really surprised it hasn't. They swear it's coming before the end of 2015, and as we're recording this right now, we're halfway through to December, and there's there's no new cereal yet. You know, so. I, I don't think they're gonna have one until probably spring. I I don't. I honestly don't think they'll have an, uh, a new season until spring. But uh, yeah, I, I hope you're wrong. I know. I hope I'm wrong too. But you know what they say was it came. Serial came out fall of last year, and they it said was October of last year. Yeah, because I remember there year. was there was no episode over Thanksgiving, and I almost lost my mind. <laughs> I think it, like I remember I was I think I would started listening to Serial maybe like six episodes into, into it, and it was like on Halloween, and I binged all six of them that were available and then I was so upset that I didn't now I had to wait week by week. You had to feel our pain. <laughs> like with everyone else, like week by week, the next episode. And it was always that funny thing because like I'd go to the gym on Thursday mornings and you could see everyone's <laughs> phone had the serial logo on it as they were as they were running. <laughs> like everybody at the gym listening to cereal at the same time. Mm. Um, so that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, maybe it'll come out soon. Maybe. I don't know. So that's it for me. I don't have any off many recommendations either. All right. Starting the new year strong. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> any, any resolutions for 2016? Um, I do. I have a couple. I've been trying this thing where last year I didn't necessarily make any resolutions. I picked a word that I wanted to focus on. I've heard of people Hmm. doing this where like, instead of making specific resolutions, you pick a word to focus on and then you try to manifest that word throughout the year. And it worked okay for me last year, although not the way I intended, as weird things so often are. I chose the word nour- nourishing in 2015 because I really wanted to do a lot of self-care after being pregnant in the first year of motherhood. And I was like, I'm going to focus on me and do a lot of you know, self-care and exercise and generate new hobbies and all of this stuff. And what I really ended up nourishing was my career <laughs> instead of, you know, instead of all that personal stuff. I had well. a lot of stuff change for me career-wise, which was excellent and wonderful, but not necessarily what I was thinking when I chose that word. Right. Um, so I'm thinking of doing something similar, of choosing a word for the year. Because it's not the new year quite yet, as we record this, I don't have my word nailed down yet. Um, but I do have some things that I want to focus on. It's really time for me to make health a priority in my life. Not that I'm radically unhealthy, but I have a little bit of weight that I'd like to lose like everyone else, but mostly I really want to be 
able to keep up with my kid now that my daughter is almost two. She's really active and physical and running around constantly. And I find myself getting a little bit tired (laughs) halfway through playing with her. And I really want to up my energy levels um, to be able to keep up with her and, you know, just be healthier in general. So I think that's going to be part of my focus, which is such a cliche uh, resolution. But I think that's part of it, not all of it. Maybe by the next time we record, I'll have those things solidified. Hmm. What about you? I don't, I don't have resolutions. No, <laughs> you just do things. You just decide you're going to do it and then you do. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. Like, you know, confession, you guys, I used to be a smoker and I, one day I just decided I'm not going to smoke anymore. And then I stopped. I was a smoker briefly too. And I also quit cold turkey just by deciding to quit. But that is literally the only thing that I've ever <laughs> done through like sheer, sheer willpower. And it wasn't hard. I, I, I did not ever crave smoking. Once I stopped, I never wanted, I sometimes I missed like the physical act of smoking. Um, but I never craved a cigarette after I quit. So it wasn't something hard. And so I feel like it wasn't a good act of discipline because it didn't really require any discipline. <laughs> Um, but I don't have that thing. You have that thing where you kind of look at something and you know, but seriously, whether it's writing or going to the gym or whatever it is that it is that you want to do, you look and you say, okay, this is the thing I want to do. I'm capable of doing this thing. And now I am going to do this thing. And it's just a very clear cut process for you and you just do it. And I just, I just can't function in that way. I can't really function at all in that sense. Like it's a lot of flailing around and like validate me and like, where's my support group and my inspiration and my, you know, and I have like a lot of moments of giving up and starting over and it's like this big epic thing and it's super exhausting. Like if I (laughs) could figure out how to do what you do, then I would choose that every time. I just haven't figured that out yet. I haven't figured out how to make that work for me with my particular brain chemistry. It's just not, no, not happening. I need the ritual of the new year to give me some reason to change something. Yeah, it's because I often, well, I don't have resolutions over things that I cannot control. So some people, you know, like, I'm going to get a deal in the new year or whatever. You right. don't have control over that. So I don't make resolutions over things that I cannot control. Um, I suppose my resolution would be to finish my next book, but I know that's going to, I'm going to do that anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> See really. what I'm talking about? This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I tend to be that kind of person who procrastinates and then does things in a flurry of activity because I can't stand the procrastination anymore. And, uh, I've always been like that. My mother thing is, it's like, I know you think that I'm, you know, very focused and disciplined, but compared to bear and compared to my mother, I'm like the least productive, laziest person on the face of the planet. And I, I am that kind of person who says, Oh, I'm going to do this, but I don't do it straight away. I'll say, I'm going to do this, but I'll get to it when I feel like it. I know I'm going to do it. I'm just going to get to it when I feel like it. Whereas, especially my partner, he, he's the kind of person who says, I'm going to do this and like, does it immediately. So for example, this weekend, he's like, I'm going to go to the grocery store. And I said, okay. And it was like two or three hours later, I was like, where is he? And he's like, oh yeah, I just, I also decided to get my car detailed. (laughs) (laughs) 
he does that. Or like, you know, we had, he and I had actually talked about getting a, like a gazebo for our back deck. And of course, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to hem and haw a little bit about what we want. And he comes home one day with the gazebo. So <laughs> he's, he's, he's that kind of person. Whereas me, I, I tend to ease into it a little bit more than he does. But I, I also know that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get it done oh, at some point. It'll get done at some point. <laughs> That's Hence why I don't make resolutions like that. <laughs> and my partner doesn't make resolutions either because he just gets stuff done. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> no waiting. Now that that's something I definitely admire. <laughs> that's all for this week. Next week we will be covering money in publishing. So th- we're going back to our publishing 201s or publishing 101/201 series and we're going to go a little bit more in depth into the business side of things. So we're going to uh, start with money and talk a little bit about advances and deals and royalties. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.